0: It's good to be back with you. Um, It's always a tremendous pleasure um, and an honor to preach from Pastor Stringer's pulpit. Um, This past eight months has been something of a whirlwind, as Al has shared with you. Um, I've had some difficulty getting visas to go back to Thailand, and that is due in part to the fact that Thailand went through a coup uh, roughly two years ago, and they are now under a military junta who is peaceful, at least at this point. And they are beginning to open up again because, of course, uh, regimes and juntas scare tourists off. So those things have been loosened somewhat and, But this past year, this past eight months specifically, as, as I have been meeting with Don Iverson and, and Al, I made them aware of a, a friend's need. Um, our sister church, something of our sister church, Fellowship Bible Church in Chester, New Hampshire, um, has a family there by the name of the Wings, and Brandon's father was the pastor of Lisbon Bible Church in Lisbon, New Hampshire. Um, Brandon and I had become friends through Steve Vadney. Um, A lot of the folks that attended Fellowship Bible Church as they moved north started attending Fellowship Bible Church there. Uh, Randy Glines and other names that you might recognize Anyway, um, the sad news is, is that Brandon's father, as the pastor of Lisbon Bible Church, had a heart attack and passed away, and they were looking for pulpit supply, and Al said to me, why don't, uh, why don't you do that while you're waiting for your visa slot to open up? And so I have been the interim pastor at Lisbon Bible Church now going on just about eight months. And working with them and helping to stabilize them, and just last well, two weeks ago they called a young pastor by the name of Kevin McKeon, and now he is going to be their senior pastor this uh, two weeks from now. Um, And so I will be stepping down. And it has been a tremendous opportunity. I love to preach. Um, it is my heart's desire, it is my spiritual gift, uh, and the Lord has used it tremendously in my own life to sharpen me um, and give me courage and a desire to preach the word uh, clearly and, and more passionately than I ever have. Um, so I am grateful again for the opportunity this morning to be with you. As Al shared with you, I have been a missionary in Thailand chronologically six years, but actually four years in country. Um, Thailand is a bit of an anomaly in Asia. And what I mean by that is there are many countries in Southeast Asia that are receptive to the gospel. And you can go and find vibrant churches in those countries, such as the Philippines and Malaysia, and Burma, and Vietnam, and such. But Thailand is unique in that having the gospel for nearly 185 years, they have remained surprisingly Buddhist. They are rocky soil. Um, we have preached the gospel in the north and the south. We have Worked with people, we have offered people to come to Bible studies, we have done everything. And we are planning to go back this year to work and possibly open an English school. That is the goal. In December, this past December, what opened up for us was a long ago relationship that I established with a pastor there. Um, a mutual friend had told me that they had started a foundation. And I sent him an email and said, "Hey, do you think uh, you would be open to letting me have three of your visa slots?" Uh, which is, you know, I haven't seen this guy for at the time I hadn't seen him for six years, and so I know it was a bit of a, a bit of a, a risk, but. He responded to me and said, you know, it's interesting, the previous week, he said, I was thinking about Payao University, but I have no one to put there. So he said, I'm going to go with this. And just like that, in December, the Lord seemed to open those doors, and we were offered work permits, in fact, to start an English school, is the goal, at Payao University. Dave, can you put up some of those? I have five photographs, just to... Kind of give you a quick. Um, I don't know how good they look. I know our server's down. Yeah, there we are. That's just outside the uh, the university entry entrance. It's about a one thousand acre campus located about forty five miles south of where I presently live. Can you show me the next one? Okay. This is the opposite side of that photo looking north down the main road. And, of course, a lot of businesses have set themselves up along this main thoroughfare to service the kids. There's approximately 25,000 students. Um, Some of them are full-time, some of them are part-time, and the like. So there's a tremendous population of young people, and one thing... The reason why we started thinking along these lines is, of all of the, I wouldn't call it success, but of all of the openings that seemed to be uh, presenting themselves, was the fact that when, when probed, these young Thais who are coming out of the paddy fields and coming out of the villages to this major university are looking at the Internet. They're being exposed to the world outside of their country, And I often would open by asking them, um, are you Buddhist because you are convinced it's true, or are you you Buddhist because your mom and dad are Buddhist? And their answer routinely was, well, I'm Buddhist because my mom and dad are Buddhist, not because I'm convinced. So from that, we began to preach the gospel to the young people um, at Payao University, and I began to think at least they're softer with the older folks I didn't even see that softness, and we had been working very hard. Can I have the next slide? This is an aerial view of the campus. It's, it's quite massive. It's, it's basically built inside a large valley. Um, that's not even showing all of it. There's a large a lake um, next to the student center. It's very beautiful. Labor's very cheap, so they can afford to build magnificent buildings. Uh, next slide. Yeah, that's a better one. Those are some of the on-campus dorms. Uh, Most of the kids, of course, like to live off campus so they can have more freedom. Um, But they are surprisingly open. There is a Christian group that meets, and I hope to find uh, inroads to that. Uh, Pam, the girl that works with us, is working with a local pastor who has an outreach to the school, But he is overwhelmed, and the young man that was there is going to be leaving, so it's virtually wide open. And I'm kind of hoping the Lord is sliding us into that slot. We'll see. Is there one more? Okay, there they are. They wear uniforms, even in college. Um, That's just one of the large classrooms, a very typical Asian classroom where they all sit down, dressed the same, and listen to, listen to their professors teach them. I believe that's it, isn't it? So we are planning on departing. I am. I'll be the first one out on the 29th. Johnny Paquette, as well as Andrew Lassard, will be coming out, and possibly another short-term missionary later on in the year. And we are hoping to move from where we are now in Bantun, Payao, and move down to the university and rent a building that can serve as a ministry outlet, church front, uh, English school, because that's their desire to learn English, as well as our residents. So if you have a burden to pray for us, pray for us that we will find a place that's suitable for that ministry and that God would begin to work on these young people's hearts. It's heartbreaking. Um, my discussions with with people that minister in the UK, in Europe, France, missionaries to Israel and Thailand all share this, this burden that there are very, very few people that seem to get saved and want to hear the gospel. So pray for us that these young people would first respond and desire to learn English, which would make them more attractive in the workplace. And from that, we might have an opportunity to have a relationship with them to share the gospel. That is our ultimate goal. Um, So if you would, this morning, turn with me to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. I want to look at one specific text, or preach around this one specific text, Beginning in verse 12, therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my absence or presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would open this word to us today, that you would give us a fresh view of our joyful duty in giving up our lives to serve you. Uh, we were bought with a price, Father, as you well know. And Father, you have exhorted us, not just in this text, but in others, to. Yield up our lives as living sacrifices. And so, Lord, as we look at our apostles' reasonings and why he says the things that he does to us, I pray that we would be better informed informed, and better equipped, Lord, to do what you are asking us to do. Open your word to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you'll forgive me. I'm I'm battling a cold. The Apostle Paul this morning is exhorting is exhorting the church at Philippi to exercise diligence and a right and reasonable seriousness in their Christian course. And he does so with these famous words, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But like all texts that we study, everything has a context, a framework from which we are able to build an accurate understanding of how and why such behavior is expected of us. It tells us how and why such behavior is good for us. Paul begins his exhortation with the word, therefore. This, of course, attaches us to our text this morning, attaches our text this morning to the realities that are spoken of in in the above verses 5 through 11, and I want to read with you verses 5 through 11, and just let them impact your mind. So in effect, Paul is saying, therefore, or because of, and beginning in verse 5, let this mind, um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God something to be exploited. And that's a better translation of the word grasped. If you have the word grasped, and I'll explain what he means by that. He did not count his equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul draws our attention to the universe's supreme example of single-minded devotion to us. That which Christ himself has left us, an example, a very specific example, to that immense devotion de- demonstrated by the height of his pre-incarnate state. And what I mean by that is we are called here in this text to remember and to reflect on the fact that our God left his throne in heaven while we were his enemies. When you look at people in the ministry, when you consider your own ministry, you think about the loss. You think about the amount it's going to cost you. So Paul says, I'm not even going to ask you here at this point to look at great men of God who have left their lives in order to benefit you. I'm going to take the supreme example in the universe, that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who although he, were, he was God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be enjoyed something to be exploited indefinitely, but he laid that aside. He had enjoyed, in his pre-incarnate state, an uninterrupted fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And his willingness to to abandon all of his divine rights and deserved honor in order to secure his his saint's salvation from the justice that was coming upon them. That is the example that God is leaving us. This is the example that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. We're going to see a sister text to this very same sacrifice, this very same example. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 1 through 4. Here in this text, the Apostle Paul alludes to human, to our human brothers and sisters who certainly, by their devotion, ought to spur us on to greater devotion and self-sacrifice, but he only alludes to them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, which is what Paul is exhorting us to do in Philippians. As the founder and perfecter of our faith, those same words, that he is at work in you, both to will and to do. The work is begun. There is no stopping it. You're already underway. So it doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable, then, to start to look at the world as if there were anything here for you. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. So Paul makes this allusion to these great cloud of witnesses, born-again people in the past who upon understanding what God had done for them, gave up their lives, wholeheartedly gave themselves up to serve the Lord and to do what pleased him. They laid aside, they made every effort, as is reminiscent of the text we just left, laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Always, the only source you will ever have is looking to Jesus. Remembering that you were not the first one to lay down your life. Not even close. And we do that, don't we? It's, 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 it's laborious. It's difficult. At times I wonder. You know, we get in the car, Andrew and I, and we drive up to Lisbon Bible Church on Thursday nights. We have a discovery Bible study at Friday, on Friday nights with, with and is the case with a lot of older New England churches, a third or, or more of our congregation, uh, we discovered, was not even saved. Not even really hearing a good gospel. They had suffered through um, some ministers that were probably uh, men who should not have been in the ministry. And so we decided to have a discovery Bible study on Friday nights with them, for those folks who just want to know what it means to be born again. And the congregation was malnourished, and I asked the elders, and they said, why don't we have a Bible study, a believer's Bible study on Saturday night? And so we have a believer's Bible study on Saturday night there just to feed and nourish and stabilize the flock that way, and then preaching and teaching Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and counseling, and emails during the week, and also my regular work day, I mean my regular work schedule down here, to then drive home on Sunday night, and then go back to work in construction uh, to save money uh, towards the work in Thailand, and then throughout the week in Fremont, New Hampshire, and Salem, New Hampshire, we have Discovery Bible Studies to help folks find the gospel. Um, And these are things that I report to Al about and to Don Iverson. I'm not boasting. What I'm telling you is, is that the only hope that I have, the only hope you're ever going to have, the only sustenance and strength that you can possibly have for laying down your life to greater and greater degrees is to look to Jesus, the supreme example of one who had it all, truly in every sense, and it says, revealing to us in our text that we just left, that he did not think, he did not, as he considered the worth of all that he possessed, the seraphim worshiping him, his throne in glory, he did not consider that so precious that he fainted or chose not to Do the thing that was necessary for your goodness. And that's what I started thinking. I started thinking, what would be good for the folks at Lisbon Bible Church? What would be good for the people that don't know Jesus Christ, who have not had a good gospel explained to them? What would be good for them? Well, what would be good for them would be me laying down my life, laying aside my fly fishing and my vacations and my whatever and getting serious about the needs of other people, the same people that Jesus Christ came into the world to save. So I saw my duty, my joy, was to imitate my Lord Jesus and follow in his footsteps, right? I did not count my... Equality with many wealthy New Englanders as something to be enjoyed or exploited in this present world, but I gave it up. I did not consider that my equality and standing on Ackerman Street and having the wealth and privilege that I could have if I just buried myself in construction and focused my eyes on making six figures every year. I did not consider that something precious in order to be Held on to. But I gave it up. And want to give it up even more. Now for certain. We will never be able to equal the Lord Jesus' accomplishments. We will never. Be able to do that. But we are nevertheless called here. In this text this morning. To fix our minds. On his level of devotion. There is absolutely no excuse for why we are not as devoted to the cause of Christ as Christ was devoted to the cause of you. In a word, the Lord Jesus' decision and sacrifice was unrestrained. It is not just God the Son who exhibited such reckless lack of self-preservation, but each member of the Trinity suffered unimaginable loss, In their own way, as they together demonstrated this supreme example of single-minded devotion to you and to me. In Romans 8.32, if you'll turn there with me, Romans 8.32. Here we find a text in which the Apostle Paul is reflecting on the Father's sacrifice, that which the father lost. And anyone here who is a father knows that it would be 10,000 times, a million times easier to take suffering upon yourself but to lose your son, to offer up your own son. So here we see this grand demonstration of the father's love in Romans 8.32 where it says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up. The father's love for the Lord Jesus on his throne for all eternity past. The father gave him up. The father didn't want to give him up. That was not desirable but in order to have you it became desirable. In order for your good. The father was willing to do that so he gave his son up for us all. How will he not also with him his son graciously give us all things. So there's a There's a scripture text that shows us the Father's suffering in the working out of our salvation. We can see from this text how God was willing to plunder the very treasuries of the Trinity to accomplish our salvation. When you think about what you are going to give up, think about that. Think about God not willing to spare even the second person of the Trinity to accomplish this. That was loss. If God demonstrated such reckless disregard for self-preservation, and they did. They did. The Trinity was broken up, it seems, for a little while. The Lord Jesus left his place and laid aside his great glory and powers, and came to the earth and became a man. He had every right to enjoy uninterrupted pleasures and serenity for all eternity. So how can we lay claim to our own private pursuits and rights if he would not lay claim to his? What if Christ had declared or decided to lay permanent claim to his life and rights and remained in heaven Refusing to enter our world and undertake our cause. The result would be that he would gain his life and we would lose ours. You're familiar with the text, aren't you? If any man wishes to keep his life, he will lose it. Right? Jesus knew that right well. He knew that if he gained his life, you would lose yours if he retained his life, if he decided not to give up his throne, if he decided not to leave his throne and to come into the world to pay for your sin, you would have lost all hope of eternal life. He would have gained and kept and enjoyed his position in the Godhead for eternity. That would have been good for him. But he thought of the good for you. It follows then that if we lay claim to this present life and to our right to spend it as we please, we demonstrate that we have nothing but contempt for all of his self-sacrifice. Such an unholy person has no intention of parting from their private pursuits. It's a private thing. It is something I see often. Some of you probably see it as I do. That Christians all around you are trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to have their Christianity and eat it too. They're trying to live for this present world and retain something for themselves and not really die 100% to themselves on the cross. Jesus said in Matthew 16 24 through 25, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we have in that the very picture of the example. Christ is saying to us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Like I denied myself. That is, that is the whole foundation of that text. It has no meaning. We only understand it in as much as Christ denied himself. The Father denied himself. The Holy Spirit denied himself. That which they enjoyed and it was their right. And many of the things you have, your money, your time, your pursuits, I suppose you can say that they are your rights. But we know that those things are gifts from God. But Christ Jesus... All of those things truly were owned and were rights for him to enjoy. And yet he gave them up. He denied himself. The Father denied himself. The Holy Spirit denied himself. And the Lord Jesus took up his cross for you and me so that we would not perish. And it is this work that we are born again into. And having such an example as that, God is saying to us, it is only reasonable. It is unreasonable, in fact, if we do not do that. Jesus raises the stakes even higher in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 through 39. Would you turn there with me? Father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is this not so? difficult text, but is it not the truth? If any man loves his dog more than his child, is that person worthy of a child? No. Likewise, if any man loves his wife or parents more than Jesus, that person is not worthy of a Savior. He doesn't understand. He is not worthy of a God. They are unholy and profane persons who put such value on things that should not be valued so much. Christ is saying that. He's saying that your perspectives have to change. Nobody should be more valuable to us than God. God is supremely precious to us the way a child is supremely precious over a man's dog. There is a distance between the value of each one of those. If any soul is so perverted in their value system that they do not see this, then then they deserve damnation. They don't deserve a savior. Such precious things ought not to be given to someone who doesn't know their value. Just as we would never want someone To have a child who hasn't demonstrated first their sense of value for children. Matthew 23 verse 4. Christ is seen rebuking. Listen to this. Christ is seen rebuking the unholy religious leaders whom he said sat in Moses' seat. They sat in the religious position of teachers and leaders. Matthew 23 verse 4. Christ condemned them as being selfish shepherds who enjoyed the pleasures and benefits of their station but refused to do any of the work. He said this, listen to these words, for they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not touch the burden with so much as a finger. In this case, the work is being borne entirely by the sheep And the shepherd is seen to be the one protecting and saving his life. Right? But in Christ's church, if you looked at the Apostle Paul's life, you saw a a remarkable human example of self-sacrifice. Every pastor, you ought to look at me, every missionary, anyone who's in the ministry, and we ought to be examples of dedication and dying on the cross. I, not, I ought not to be taking my life back and trying to figure out which part of it I can keep for myself. I ought to be following in the Apostle Paul's example, who was following in the Lord Jesus' example. And Paul said that, didn't he? He said in that one place, Be you imitators of me as I was an imitator of Christ. But it is just the opposite with Jesus. Referring back to this text about these bad shepherds who were not doing any of the work. It is just the opposite with the Lord Jesus. He is the one seen bearing the heaviest of the loads. Christ condemned the shepherds of his day because they wouldn't bear any of the weight. They wouldn't do any of the work. And Christ is presented to the world as the one who's doing all of the work. What an amazing pastor we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a sterling example of someone to get behind and follow. What a dedication and self-sacrifice did that pastor have. Do you think of the Lord Jesus as your pastor? He is. That's what the word shepherd means. I had the benefit of having an Indian friend uh, in Southern California when I was at the Master's College. And he always would refer to the Lord Jesus as his pastor, his shepherd. And he is. We are told that we are under shepherds. He is the chief shepherd. He is the chief pastor of the church. And he is the one that is shown to be the one doing all the work. So naturally, our work, we had better not be sitting around while our pastor is working as hard as he is, and I'm speaking of our pastor, the Lord Jesus, working as hard as he has, and sacrificing as much as we have, and we are doing nothing or little to, he- to lift those loads. Like the ungrateful Pharisees of Matthew 23, these pastors relish the benefits of all that God had done for them, and they repay his unequaled self-sacrifice by spending their years pursuing earthly pleasures. That's how they were repaying him. When the Lord Jesus Christ said those words to those pastors, he was angry. This is what he came into. Right, The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, and he did rightly expect that his pastors, his shepherds, His leaders in Israel would have his flock together, but he didn't find that. He found them instead enjoying all of the unequaled benefits that Israel had enjoyed, pursuing earthly pleasures which only served to enhance and fulfill their private lives. But everyone who by the Holy Spirit truly experiences the benefits of such a self-sacrificing divine friend, is seized by a holy, what's-in-it-for-me contempt, which holds nothing dear, but the one who secured those eternal benefits for them. When you think on eternity, when you think of what the Lord Jesus has done for me, you are not going to be asking, what's in it for me? Do you remember when we were first saved? Many of you remember me coming into this church long ago in 1982, Um, born again out of a family of unsaved people, but I was so thankful for what the Lord Jesus had done for me that I began immediately going to every Bible study I could find. In fact, my father used to say to me, do you have to go to five Bible studies a week? But it was a joy, it was a desire. I wanted nothing to do with my old life. I didn't want my old life. I didn't want my things. I wanted Christ's things. And it was overwhelming to me at that time. Paul exhorts the church in Galatia not to use this glorious liberty as a cloak for sin. You are immune from justice. Theoretically, everyone figures out pretty quick that I suppose if Jesus has paid for my sins and I decide to take back a portion of my life and not give it to him, it's not like I'm going to hell. Have you ever thought thoughts like that? When you think about that little area of your life that you're holding on to that you're not going to give the Lord, do you think to yourself, I'm not going to hell for that? So... And -and so-and-so is getting away with it. Sadly, the corruption that often rules the heart of every professing believer, and we are still in the flesh, we have corruption, begins before long to rationalize an unbiblical lifestyle. That's how we get there. We rationalize unbiblical behavior, unbiblical thinking. We're not living like heavenly creatures, we're living like earthly creatures. I wouldn't say that we are carnal, right? We all know where that is, or we hope. No, we're not talking about that, but we're talking about acceptable Christian compromise, which is more insidious. We begin to rationalize an unbiblical lifestyle through biblical comforts designed to encourage true Christians who sometimes stumble into sin the more professing Christian excuse me the more professing Christian learns that Jesus' atonement insulates them from the wrath of God and therefore they can never suffer damnation the very thing that is designed to comfort a Christian when they sin becomes the tool by which Christians rationalize sin. You are kept from the wrath of God by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that very thing that Christians use to say, I can can take this back. I don't have to live that dedicated. I'm not going to go to hell if I'm not that dedicated. So the professing Christian says to him or herself, why not save some of your life? Why not keep back something for yourself? The master is not returning for a long time, and if he returns at an hour when we do not expect, we will still go to heaven because everyone's doing it. But not everyone's doing it. Jesus wasn't doing it. Paul wasn't doing it. There was a cloud of witnesses that were not doing it. And that is Paul's call to us. Don't do that. It is not the rational thing to do. It is the irrational thing. It will not amount to your joy in heaven, but shame. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I want to show you a picture of the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to see what our master looked like before he left, right? It says in our text this morning that he did not think his equality with God, his station and throne in heaven was something to be exploited, to be enjoyed for eternity. With, with this on his mind that if he didn't leave his throne that you would all perish in hell. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said to the Lord Jesus, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord And so it is thus revealed to us in our text today that we are to thoroughly work at the salvation that he has begun. Not just your own personal salvation, but your part in this body. This church body locally, and your part in the body of Christ universally. That is the language that he's using when he says, Work out your salvation. This is not a works salvation. Many people understand this text incorrectly. They don't really know how to interpret it, so I want to help you with that a little bit. The text is actually saying that God wants us to work at this thing. Not to accomplish it, it's already been accomplished, but once it has been accomplished, he wants us to to work at it towards our sanctification, Armed with this view, the glorious vision of the pre-incarnate state of our Lord Jesus, surrounded by worshipful seraphim, enjoying the uninterrupted pleasures of his godhood, that even he did not cling to such blissful life as he enjoyed. Was his life not blissful? Right? Don't we seek that as Americans, as American Christians, to have a good life? Right there is someone who had a blissful life, the Lord Jesus, and he did not consider that to be something to be clung to at a time of such need—the need to save you, the need to step in and rescue you from the justice of God. By this wonderful, um, excuse me, by this wonderful and constant vision of the Lord Jesus as the author and finisher of your salvation, right? it it concludes in us, most necessary, the work of tending to and caring for not just our souls, but the souls of those around us. You know what happens when you neglect your own soul? You know what happens when you neglect your house? If you neglect your car for too long, If you neglect to look in on your children too long. Here God is saying in this very text in Philippians, work at this thing. Put your shoulders to the work. Get involved in this work. This is why I saved you, for this work. Your work in the world and your life in the world is incidental to my work and your work. You are included in this work. He is calling this your work. He's making our work for us. He's deciding our career. Our career is our faith, our Christianity. And the Bible tells us that this is to be done with fear and trembling. Giving the magnitude of potential loss to one's own soul. Right? When people are seeking the Lord, don't we exhort them to be careful in this business? Don't we exhort them? Right? Why? Because what's at stake? Their soul. Their soul is at stake. So injury is done to a person's soul if they neglect it. If they neglect God's gracious gift, it is reflected immediately upon entering death. It makes sense then that true Christians will obey joyfully and so distinguish themselves from the professing Christians people who profess to be Christians are not going to do this. They're not going to serve the Lord and go to this work to which he has begun. He or she moves with definite and deliberate purpose to work alongside God. That's what this means. You're working alongside God. You've been brought into a work that was already underway. You are co-workers And co-laborers with God. And your lives are incidental to that work. And the benefits that you receive. And the benefits that those who know you receive. Both the church family and the unsaved people in the world. Is going to be exponential. That's your treasure. And doesn't Jesus say that? He says don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. These are another kind of treasure. That maybe they don't have your eye right now. They don't, they're not the apple of your heart. You're thinking about your retirement. You're thinking about your house, your next car, and what you're going to do. And Christ is saying, no, you need to have an entire paradigm shift. You need to see things that are truly valuable and truly precious. And with that as your eye, with that, as if there were a pile of gold on this te- uh, desk and it was shining, sparkling from the light, And every once in a while I'd reach over and I'd jingle and you'd see it shining brilliant. There's a part of your heart that's going to go, ooh. Because we're trained to think of money as precious. But it's not. It has some value. But Christ is saying, no, your treasures are someplace else. True treasures that will last for an eternity. And those are the things that you are to be focused on. This is our Lord speaking to us. He's our counselor, our pastor. So naturally, when a pastor sees his flock going astray or one of his flock going astray, he goes to his, his flock or his sheep, and he says, Hey, you know, this isn't good for you. I can see you're, you're going in a way that's going to be detrimental to yourself and those around you. And like the Lord Jesus Christ is turning you away from those things. Literally in the Greek, the word means to work thoroughly at a thing. God is exhorting us to attend thoroughly to every matter that pertains to the welfare and the state of our souls. And others as well. Peter used these words when he said, Make your calling and election sure. True and consistent godliness fortifies you with certainty that you are not just a professing Christian. If you doubt your salvation, if you're dry, could it be that you're living for the world, that you have turned your eyes away from true treasures And are now looking at things that are worthless and therefore they cannot make you happy. Therefore they are bound to make you dry. Could that be it? I'd like to share a story with you about Frances Havergal. She was an unusually gifted and passionate saint. She was the daughter of a church rector. She was raised in Worcester, England in the 1800s and attended schools in England and Germany. In her love of learning, she grew to become an able scholar, even becoming proficient in both Greek and Hebrew. She was a talented singer and pianist. The deepest desire of her heart, however, was in personal spiritual influence upon others. This led her to value most of all her ability to write. For that reason, she expended the majority of her life's labors in writing prose and poetry that would spiritually be beneficial to the saints. Havergal suffered poor health and was taken by the Lord at just 42 years of age. But the Lord prospered her ministry and her writings have had a large impact on the church both in her day and also in ours. The story of Take My Life gives a good picture of the kind of passion and joy she had in ministering to others. She once recounted the story behind that great hymn. She says, Perhaps you would be interested to know the origin of the consecration hymn, Take My Life. I went for a little visit of five days, and there were ten persons in the house, some unconverted and long prayed for, and some converted, but not rejoicing Christians. He gave me the prayer, Lord, give me all in this house. And she said he did just that. Before I left the house, everyone had got a blessing. The last night of my visit I was so happy I could not sleep and I passed most of the night in praise and renewing my own consecration and these little couplets formed themselves and chimed in my heart one after another till they finished with ever only all for thee. In her own words, the hymn is a consecration hymn in which the singer commits all of her possessions, and being to the Lord, all of her possessions, and being to the Lord for his purposes. It expresses what each of us ought to feel and long for, even if at times we see so much disparity between our words and our actual spiritual state, that we have to sing most of it With just this hope and faith. So let me read these words to you. The words of the hymn. It says take my life. Now this is a consecration hymn. A prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. And let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever, only, all for thee. That is the life of a soul that is 100% dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ who left his glorious throne for you and me. That is the example that we have. In closing, I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The congregation of Israel, the church of God in the Old Testament, was a, an older congregation by this time. Many, many years had passed since the beginning of their church life, back when Moses led them out of Egypt. And here in this beautiful text, God, we see God lamenting for the intimacy he once had with his bride. Read it with me. It says, The Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus saith the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. You see there in that text how God is reflecting not the current state of his bride's affections, but the earlier state. Right? She was newly married to God a brand new church that began in the wilderness, and she was brought out of Egypt with such great fanfare and such glory and powerful demonstrations of grace. Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember what it was like those early years when your dedication was beaming? You were at church every time the doors opened. You were sitting everywhere you could to hear the word of God. You were bursting. You were like... A newly married bride to Christ, and you adored him. God reflects on this further, he says, how you followed me into the wilderness. Right, when you look at young brides, you see how they follow their husbands. Right, but here is God, right, this is not a human husband who makes the parents of the bride nervous. This is God who then decides to lead his bride, his new bride, out into the wilderness and God is reflecting on this and said that you loved me so much you would follow me to the end of the earth. Even to a land not sown. Do you know what that means? It means that she knew the church that left with Moses that first... That first church in the wilderness, she knew it was not going to be easy. She knew that it was a land unsown. It was not a cultivated land. It was not going to be easy. You knew that. You knew that when you got saved, that it wouldn't be easy. You knew the word of God, that you would lay down your life, that you would take up your cross. And why are you taking it back? Why are you taking up? This neglect, this very neglect, is what brought the Israelites to the position that they were in in the days of Jeremiah, the neglect of their singular devotion that they had lost, or rather left, not lost, but left their first love. I remember on our 50-year anniversary banquet dinner address... How Pastor Stringer said to all of you, I know that many of you are saved, that the Lord has you, but do you have him? Are you really serving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I know you're born again, but are you truly living with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will, by the mercies of God, by all that the Lord Jesus has done, by leaving his throne in heaven, we ought to give our lives, our whole lives, and expect to keep nothing for ourselves and let him do what he will with it. And you will experience joy, the joy you understood when you were first saved again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would apply this text to our hearts. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would keep before us an image of your pre-incarnate glory when you were sitting enthroned in majesty and the seraphim were worshiping you and you were enjoying eternal bliss from all eternity and you did not even consider that as perfect as it was, something to be grasped and clung to and exploited further. But to give yourself up for us and to give your life up for us, we ought to also give our lives back to you. We ought not to keep our lives, but to lay them down at your feet and say, tell us whatever you want us to do and we will do it. Help us, Father, we mean to do it, our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak, and the world is, is powerfully in our eyes, but I pray that we would be a people who love you with all our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.